Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Welcome, welcome. Got a great episode up ahead. Um, lots of lots of things have happened since last week, of course, because there's never a dull moment <laughs> ever with this administration, ever. But um, this week's guest is Ian Bremer, who is a uh, political economist analyst. He's president and founder of the Eurasia Group. He's got a PhD. He's written lots of books. Super smart guy. Um, He's my guest this week to talk about the rise in white nationalism globally, what's going on in light of what this terrible tragedy in New Zealand. And he's an expert on these kinds of global affairs. So um, I thought it was important to have someone with that level of expertise on the show this week to talk about what the hell's going on around the globe. It's not just happening here in the US. So stay tuned for Ian Bremer. He's uh, we have a great conversation about that. And also he's like really into tech. And, um, and so we talk a little bit about 5G and what that is and why we should care about. There's like a big controversy over 5G. The only thing that I know about 5G is like um, on my Fios internet, I have the option of 2G and then 5G, but I can only be next to my modem to use 5G. And it's super fast. That's all I know. But apparently there's like a major a legislative um, fight going on about this. And we talk about that too. So it affects all of us and our cell phones and our abilities to download and things like that. Who knew? Hmm. So that's what I'm here for, to bring facts, to bring people who know what they're talking about so we can all learn together. Um, So stay tuned for Ian Bremmer. He's coming up in a little bit. Before that, let's talk about New Zealand. You know, at any time these kinds of awful tragedies happen. It just really makes my heart heavy. And people, when there's this kind of loss of life, you know, the week before it was the the Ethiopian plane crash, you know, at least something like that, it's, you know, horrible, but it's technical or, you know, pilot error or something like that. When you have a terrorist attack with just evil incarnate is in front of you like that, it's, it just makes it that much more difficult to swallow because you just don't want to admit that humans can be this awful. And we see this over and over again. And my, my heart goes out, my condolences, my thoughts and prayers, all of those things for the innocent people in New Zealand, the Muslims who were slaughtered in their mosques. I mean, no one should have to fear being slaughtered in their houses of worship. It doesn't get any more soft target than that. Churches, synagogues, mosques. We've seen this happen before. I don't know. I don't know how we stop it either. Because these bastards who do this, they don't care whether they live or die. It's it's hard to stop lone wolf attacks. We're still figuring out whether this guy had help or not or financing or what, but if they're willing to get their lives to do it, now they caught him, he's alive, and he smug SOB, he was in, in I'm not even going to say his name, but he was in court smiling, throwing up white power signals. I mean, the arrogance, you know? And he live streamed the whole thing. Terrible. And it was up on Facebook and everywhere else, live streamed. 
this slaughter of 50 people and injured dozens other of others. I mean, the, the, the youngest victim was three years old. What a sick bastard. I, I just, I just can't with that kind of evil. So, you know, I've been to New Zealand and uh, I talk about this with Ian when, when uh, he comes up in a little bit. I did the interview prior to this part, but we talk about this. You know, New Zealand is a, one of the most beautiful places in the world. I've had the privilege of, of visiting there. Um, my husband, for his uh, 40th birthday, we went in 2015 and spent 10 days in New Zealand. And it was one of the most spectacular, amazing, breathtakingly majestic places ever. And I've traveled, you know, a few here and there. My husband's traveled all over the world many, three times over for work. But <clears throat> but New, Ze- there's, New Zealand is a special place. You know, it's we're Lord of the Rings and other movies or films just because it's just such a enchanting place. And it's, there's, there's more sheep than people. It's pristine. You can pull over in the side of the road and like drink from a stream. That's how clean the water is. We actually did that, by the way. We took a bus from Queenstown. We visited both North Island and South Island. We were all over. It was like a marathon trip. I, I still pat myself on the back for the logistical genius in my trip for, <laughs> to planning for New Zealand um, for my husband's 40th birthday. We we packed it in in 10 days. I mean, you could stay, you could spend a month in New Zealand and not do, you know, experience the whole country, but it's uh, not that big, but there's just so many places to go and things to do. Like nothing can kill you there. So that's why a lot of people flock there to backpack and hike and stuff because there's no like tigers or, you know, bears or things that are going to, that are going to kill you. I think there's like a poisonous spider, but even then it doesn't kill you. It only, you only get really sick if it bites you. That's it. So it's super safe. The crime rate is really not that high there. Everyone is super nice. I, I mean, it's just, it's a beautiful place. So we were in North Island. That's where Auckland is. We went out to Wahiki Island where it's, um, they have vineyards there. It's off. Uh, you have to take a ferry from Auckland. My husband jumped off the Sky Tower. They had this like thing where you're tethered and you can just kind of like zip lining, but vertically. And you jump off the Sky Tower. It's like 620 feet, I think. Uh, it was cool. He was screaming. It's hilarious. I should post the video. He'll kill me. But <laughs> um, anyway, and then we had a chance to fly down to Queenstown and we went to... Uh, we went to Milford Sound and when the bus we took from Queenstown to Milford Sound, it's like a five hour drive one way. And we stopped at a natural spring, like one of the beautifully scenic areas. And the, the, the tour guide was like, yeah, if you have a water bottle, you can drink from the water, from the stream, fill up your water bottles. We're like, what? Yeah, it's, it was just, it's beautiful. We, we took a helicopter ride to the top of a glacier. So we experienced like every climate in New Zealand during our trip. It was like 75, 80 degrees in Auckland and in Wahiki Island, really warm in Rotorua, which is like the cultural center of, of New Zealand where the Maori people have, um, all kinds of cultural events and things there. And it's, a uh, thermal, like the thermal, um, mud baths and all those things there from the volcanic activity and all that stuff in New Zealand. So Rotorua is cool. The whole place smells like sulfur, but it's really good if you're asthmatic, which I am, which doesn't make sense, right? You figure it stinks like sulfur, but this is good for your lungs, but it is all the natural minerals and stuff in the air. Um, We saw one of the the geysers there. It's like one of those kind of like Old Faithful. So we've seen Old Faithful. We've actually been there in in, uh, um, 
Yellowstone. And we've been to this really famous geyser, I forget the name now, in Rotorua, New Zealand. So that was kind of cool. <clears throat> but anyway, so yeah, I mean, we just had a chance to, it's a beautiful place. I encourage anyone who has the opportunity to go there. It's a long flight if you're coming from the East Coast. It's like you have to fly from New York to LA and then LA to Auckland or Sometimes you have to do another layover in Fiji or somewhere, which is what we did on the way back. So we got to spend a day in Fiji coming home, which was really cool. Anyway, but so I say all that to say that New Zealand is a beautiful place and um, it's really just a shame that such a horror happened there and it really rattled the country. And but I will I give kudos to their prime minister the Prime Minister of New Zealand, Prime Minister Adern, she really handled this with class, with grace, with strength, uh, and compassion. You know, there were pictures and video of her hugging victims' families, and and um, yeah, she she really handled this well, the way a leader should. Can't say that that would happen here in the United States. God forbid there was a tragedy of that magnitude again here, because we have a disgraceful person in the White House who is incapable of feeling anything because he's a malignant narcissist. But um, yeah, I uh, now I see that there she's proposing some gun laws and changes and things like that. Um, I'm not going to get into a gun debate right now, but uh, all I'm going to say is that we have a constitutional amendment here. And every time these tragedies happen and like places like you know, Australia, people point to that, well, they confiscated weapons and they don't have any assault weapons. And uh, well, there's a, there are a lot of problems with that in Australia. And plus they don't have a constitutional right. Like we do. It's a different culture, different things. So I think each country needs to do what they think is best for them. Um, I'm not, I'll save that gun debate for another day, but, but the white nationalism you know, the President Trump was was asked about this on Friday during his veto ceremony when he vetoed the national emergency, which is, you know, that was typical. He put on a spectacle with that whole thing, talking about it was his duty to veto it. Bullshit. OK. And then shame on, by the way, only 12 Republican senators voted um, for the amendment that condemned it. So good for them. Thank God they found their balls and decided to stand up for the Constitution. But what about the rest of the Republican senators? And what about all the only, I think, um, a handful, I forget how many now, in the House voted in favor of the resolution that condemned the national emergency? Because it's a fake national emergency, and it's a terrible executive overreach of presidential power. And they damn well know it, but they're too cowardly to vote against the president because they're afraid that their crazy primary voters are going to vote them out of office, you know, so they'd rather compromise their principles. It's ridiculous. But anyway, so Trump made a spectacle of it and he took questions. He took um, some media questions and somebody asked him about, because we found out that this guy, this wackadoodle in New Zealand wrote uh, an 80 something page manifesto going on and on with it's spouting white supremacist, white nationalist crap and um, used some terminology that we've heard too much in this country, like about Muslims and, and immigrants invading places, and especially Europe. Um, and so Trump was asked, and he poo-pooed the whole thing. Oh, no, I don't think there's a problem. There's not a rise in white nationalism. It's a small group of 
sick people and that's it, dismissing it. Well, that's actually not true. The facts do not bear that out. There is a rise in white nationalism across the, the world, not just in America. But we're going to talk about America right now. And these are the facts. So <clears throat> the Anti-Defamation League, which is um, like the NAACP for, uh, for Jews, and they track anti-Semitism and, and far-right extremism. And the Anti-Defamation League said that white supremacist murders doubled in 2017. Doubled from the year before. That's a problem. I mean, you just have to look in 2018 and you saw what happened at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh. Cases of anti-Semitism have risen in the last couple of years. They also said that uh, a study showed that far-right extremism, that 59% of extremist-related deaths came from far-right extremism. Only 20% of those deaths happened in, were in 2016. That's a problem. The Center for Strategic and International Studies said that far-right extremism quadrupled between the years 2016 and 17. They've studied this over a 10-year period. Quadrupled. What's the common denominator? Hmm. Donald Trump, perhaps, and what his, and his ilk? Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that Donald Trump's responsible for what happened in New Zealand. What I am saying is that words matter. And that people in power, people who have influence like the president of the United States, need to be more responsible with their words. And Donald Trump needs to condemn this kind of behavior unequivocally. He has not done that. He comes out and he kind of, once in a while makes a, a, a statement about this or that, and, or somebody writes a statement for him and he reads it because he didn't, because what he said initially was inadequate, like what happened with Charlottesville right? He came out and gave a written statement. <clears throat> he read from a written statement and everyone was like, okay, yeah. But then when he had the chance to free, to freelance it, when there was no prompter, no written statement, that's when the, well, there were good people on both sides came out. Yeah. Well, that's really how he felt. So these people are emboldened. I mean, I don't think that Donald Trump is running around going, yeah, like cheering on white supremacists, but he's obviously made a decision that he's not going to come out that strongly about it. And that is bullshit. It's irresponsible. He's the president of the United States. You need to have some self-awareness here to have some leadership. But he never, never rises to the occasion, ever. The FBI... Also, now, some people may remember, I remember this because I was on Capitol Hill at the time. When Barack Obama first got into the presidency, one of the first things he asked the Department of Homeland Security to do when Janet Napolitano was DHS secretary was to study and produce a report on right wing, the rise of right wing extremism. This was back in 2009. Now, I remember that the conservative um, circles, we, we actually, we freaked out about that because we felt like it was unfairly targeting conservatives and possibly labeling people who had different views um, being, you know, they, they were going to be targeted by the government as extremists. And we had a problem with that. So I understood that, you know, never like when the government comes in and starts poking around too much, but in hindsight, 
perhaps it was an overreaction because obviously something's been brewing for quite some time now and resources have been diverted from Homeland Security and the FBI and DOJ away from domestic terrorism uh, as a priority and of course focused on Islamic terrorism, international terrorism, which look, that's important too. But have we taken our eye off the ball? What's going on here in the in our own country? I'm starting to question that. Maybe the way in which the president, President Obama was commissioning that report wasn't the best. But the idea that we took our eye off the ball somewhat of this right, this rise of right wing extremism, you know, I, it's, that's not it's it's the chickens may be coming home to roost now. Now, the FBI has something called the Office of Partner Engagement, which I wasn't aware of this of this office within the FBI. But what they've been doing lately over the last couple of years is they've been working with religious institutions um, and religious in, in, you know, in, in different communities to educate them on how to secure their houses of worship. You know, remember Dylan Roof and what happened in Charleston, what happened in with that church in Texas. These are soft targets. People aren't going to their houses of worship expecting to be gunned down by lunatics. But obviously, it's happening frequently enough that the FBI has made the decision to to engage religious institutions and local law enforcement to help identify potential suspects or people who may engage in such attacks and people need need to be prepared. It's a sad state of affairs but necessary. Now there are 900 domestic terror cases active right now. Now they're not all far, far right wing nuts. And so that's, that's everybody. That's the left and the right extremists all around, but there's 900 active cases open right now. That's just domestic. That's not the international terrorist. That's not ISIS. That's not Al Qaeda. So there's something going on here. And the Democrats in the House, on the House Judiciary Committee, they've said, look, the president's not going to acknowledge this. He's, try- he's trying to tell people that this is not something we need to be concerned about. Well, you know what? It's something we need to be concerned about. So the House Judiciary Committee is going to hold hearings on this sometime in April. They just announced that. They're going to call in people from the FBI, DHS, etc., to talk about it. We need to talk about it. We need to confront this. Obviously, there's something going on. So don't believe Trump and his, you know, his people because they're too busy trying. I mean, Mick Mulvaney, the acting chief of staff, he was called out on Fox News by Chris Wallace, one of the sane, few sane people over at Fox News. He's a real journalist. He, um, you know, he had to pin him down on this because the president's response was kind of tepid. And he had to come out and say, oh, no, the president's not a white supremacist. Okay. Ridiculous that we even have to do that. But part of that is because of his behavior, his own behavior and his own words. Sorry. You know, in the, in that manifesto, um, Trump was only mentioned once. He was only mentioned once. And it, so it wasn't as though this guy was like, not like the the crazy guy that was sending pipe bombs, and mail bombs to CNN and, President Obama and other uh, opponents of the president, you know, people that this person deemed Caesar, I forget his last name now, but the crazy guy down in Florida, 
with the van that had all the Trump paraphernalia on. And that was different. <laughs> that guy clearly was inspired by what was going on. I mean, he, he was whacked, but felt emboldened. He went after people. Donald Trump specifically calls out on, on Twitter, like Maxine Waters and CNN and, and others. It's ridiculous. So this situation in New Zealand was not quite that at all. I mean, he only mentioned Trump, Trump once, and he said that Trump, he saw him as, quote, a symbol of a renewed white identity and common purpose. So he found some kind of kinship with him. That's a problem. But he also turned around and said that he didn't support Trump's policies. He brought up some other things, too. He brought up that Candace Owens. And, you know, I have my significant disagreements with her on a lot of things. Frankly, I think she's a grifter and knows nothing about the conservative movement and found an opportunity to make money and get attention by latching on to this this um, youth for Trump brown shirt movement. And she's being used. I mean, she was a Democrat blogger before. Now, I'll tell you where I do agree with her. I do agree with her about the idea of the Democratic Party taking advantage of black votes. And um, but that's nothing new. I mean, I've been talking about that for years. Part of my my conservative uh, viewpoint worldview has been trying to explain why I think the Democrats have taken advantage of minorities in this country and why I think their policies don't work. But that's a far cry from what Candace Owens does. And a lot of her rhetoric is just that. She doesn't believe half of what she says. And she's just falling into this cabal and, and riding this wave like the other grifters, the diamond and silks and these people who've come out of nowhere to get some, some attention. And she was mentioned in this. And I was like, what? That's really weird. Um, and she freaked out on Twitter because the, the, the guy claimed that she inspired him because of some of her anti-Muslim rhetoric and things. And I guess about, uh, rhetoric against immigrants. And which seemed a little counterintuitive, like he's a white supremacist, but a black female inspired him. So we're not sure if it's facetious, if it was just sarcasm or what. But the point is, she was still mentioned. And I, you know, if I were her, I would stop and say, what have I done or said that I would even be on the radar of a piece of shit like this? It would really require me to have some self-reflection. Is she responsible? No. But still, I mean, no self-reflection? No, none for her. She doubled and tripled down and put some snarky um, responses on Twitter. She had an LOL in there blaming Democrats for, for going after her. And if anybody tries to say that she was associated with this, she's going to sue them. And a very Trumpian response. No self-reflection at all. I mean, just I just don't get these people. I really don't. When I worked in Capitol Hill, um, I, I worked with um, a lot on the Oklahoma City bombing case because Congress and Rohrabacher believed there was an international connection. And, you know, at first I was like, wait, what? But after the level of investigation we did, I, I get it. There's a lot of questions there. But in the course of that investigation, um, we were trying to get in an oversight capacity because he was chairman, a sub subcommittee chairman that had investigative um, powers on the Foreign Affairs Committee at the time. And we were trying to get a visit with Ramsey Youssef. Now, Ramsey Youssef is one of the first 
like Al Qaeda affiliate terrorists. He was responsible for the world, um, the first World Trade Center bombing in the early 90s. And he was the nephew of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so he was a bomb maker. And he was, we, the theory was that Terry Nichols, who helped build the bomb for, um, to, uh, what's his name, that blew up the Oklahoma City Towers, um, that he helped him, Timothy McVeigh, that Terry Nichols learned to build bombs from Ramsey Youssef over in the Philippines. That's the theory. We'd have, we weren't able to prove it, but there were some, a lot of interesting coincidental meeting, um, information, not meetings, but potential for them to have crossed paths. That was the theory. So we were trying to get into the Supermax facility in Colorado. That's where all the worst of the worst of the worst are put. It's out there in Florence, Colorado, um, not too far from where NORAD is outside of Colorado Springs out there in Colorado. And the Justice Department kept saying no, because he was considered a special SAMS um, inmate, special administrative measures, which meant that only his immediate family and his lawyer and law enforcement could visit him because he was so dangerous. There's a couple of people like that. And we were saying that, you know, a congressional oversight function, that we had the right to see him. Well, it went back and forth. We went through many attorney general, attorneys general to try to get permission. And they kept telling us, no, 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 no. Well, one, during the course of this, we had to get permission from him first. He had to agree to see the congressman. I say we because I you know, worked on the issue with him. So I would have been one of the people who accompanied him um, on this. So Ramsey Youssef, now at the time I was working on the border agent case, the border, I've, you probably hear me mention this. I was like the Aaron Brockovich of a case for two border patrol agents, agents Ramos and Compion in Texas. They were sentenced to 11 and 12 years for shooting an illegal alien drug smuggler and not properly reporting it. It's a whole long case. I'll have to dedicate a podcast to it one day. But at the time I was working on that case, we did get them out. We got a presidential commutation from George Bush and got them out of prison. But during that two year fight for them, I did a lot of television. I was on Fox. I was on CNN because I was there. I was one of the most vocal advocates as a through the congressional office that I worked for, for Congressman Rohrabacher. He put me out there because I knew all the facts and what was going on. And I was kind of leading the charge. Well, <clears throat> Ramsey Youssef wrote a letter back to the congressman. Now, his name was Dana Rohrabacher. So Dana, you know, is a unisex name. You don't know if it's a man or a woman. Obviously, Ramsey Youssef was unclear whether it was a man or a woman, or he thought that it was a, a woman because he wrote back and said that he would be more than happy to allow the congressman to come visit him. But he's, and then he said, P.S., I think you're beautiful. What? So when we saw this letter, we were like, oh my God, Ramsey Youssef thinks I'm the congressman because he probably saw me on TV with the name, you know, my title, which was communications director for Dana Rohrabacher, but didn't put it together because clearly he wasn't talking about Dana. He's a dude. <laughs> I mean, maybe, but I don't think so. I was horrified by that. I tell that story to say that I was, 
I felt dirty and gross just for being the object of affection for a terrorist, a piece of shit terrorist. So how does Candace Owens sleep at night knowing that this maniac that killed 50 people and injured more so heinously even mentioned her in his manifesto? That's all I'm saying about that. I just, I don't get it. These people are just soulless. I don't know. I don't know. I don't have any other explanation for it. But it's pretty sad in my in my opinion. Speaking of something sad, um, I know this is like kind of a downer podcast this week. I don't really want it to be this, but this is what's happening in the world. I saw something else over the weekend. And then I'm going to talk about Trump's tweets because he went on an insane tweet storm over the weekend. Unlike I think we've seen in quite some time. I'm going to talk about that in a second, but I I cannot, I have to bring up something I saw, a story that I saw, excuse me, a story that I saw about Oregon, the state of Oregon and what they're doing with their foster kids. Now, I saw the headline and it said, Oregon is placing kids in jails, foster kids in jails instead of housing them with families. And I'm like, what? Now, this hits close to home for me because my husband is a product of foster care. And um, so I was very interested in this story. Now, my husband is a triplet and he has a younger brother. So the four brothers were abandoned by their mother when she when they were about three or four years old. They ended up in foster care. They ended up with an abusive foster care mother in Brooklyn, New York. They were forcibly removed from foster care by child services and then placed in an orphanage. And at the orphanage, finally, a family member discovered that they were no longer with their mother and in an orphanage and rescued them. But it was over at least a year and a half before that happened. So, you know, my husband at a very young age experienced the difficulties and trauma of being in foster care and then an orphanage and being abandoned by by his mother. I mean, it's horrible. And a lot of these kids don't make it. A lot of them don't get adopted. A lot of them don't get foster caring foster parents. You know, our child welfare system in this country is screwed up. You know, you want to spend money on something. That's what we need to be spending money on. We need to have more private partnerships to get these kids because, you know, the government does not handle things like that. Well, they just don't most of the time. And um, it's so this is an issue that that hits home for me. It resonates because my husband was one of the blessed ones that got a family member to take him and his brothers in. They were not separated, thank God. And he turned out to be all right. But, you know, his his brothers, it was different. They all turned out differently. But still, imagine the kids that don't have that. So when I saw this story about the state of Oregon and their foster care program, I, I, it really, it hurt me and enraged me at the same time. What's happening in Oregon? So... Apparently, a couple years ago, there was a lawsuit brought and then a settlement because they were they were short on foster families, more kids than families willing to take them in. They were housing some of these kids in hotels and somebody sued and they came up with a settlement saying that, look, we can't keep doing this. You got to figure out something else to do with these kids. They cannot keep staying in hotels. Plus, it was costing the state a lot of money. So under this agreement, they're trying to to they're trying to um, conform with this agreement and they decided that, well, since we don't have enough families, 
these kids, now these are the kids who are the most traumatized. They have the most emotional trauma. Some of them are homicidal, suicidal, developmentally um, underdeveloped. They, they're, the, they're the problem kids, right? They're putting them now in juvenile jail situations. They've either converted old juvenile jail facilities or they're putting them in the wings, the juvenile wings of actual jails, basically institutionalizing them. It's like jail. Now they haven't done anything. They're not juvenile delinquents here. They're not convicted in juvie. These are foster kids. How horrible is that? I mean, you're just telling these kids that they're really not, it's bad enough they're dealing with abandonment issues or they're dealing with parents that can't take care of them. That's why they're in the foster care system. Now you're throwing them in like a jail institutionalized situation. It's horrible, horrible. You're like damning these kids to nothing. They're they're never going to make it. And I just thought, this is the United States of America. There has to be a better way. We're the richest country in the world. Why are we throwing these kids away? That's what you're doing. Shame on them. I just, I find it hard to believe Oregon can't do better. I really do. Well, in, ironically, um, Senator Wyden from Oregon, he was the chief sponsor of a bill that passed in 2018 called the Family First Prevention Services Act, which was supposed to designate more money and services to keep kids in family units whether foster care or to work with their own families so that they're not put in foster care because study after study has shown that kids thrive or do or they they're they they do better when they're still in a family situation whether it's foster care or their own families with some outside help but in an in a family unit not in institutionalized or put into like group homes and things like that there's an organization, a child welfare organization called the Casey Family Services and um, Casey.org. They did a study on this. It's, the, the results are pretty clear about what happens to kids who are in family units versus kids who aren't. So that should be the goal, right? It's called child welfare for a reason. And Senator Wyden thought that Oregon was supposed to be the gold standard. We were going to be the first to lead the charge on this. Well, you're doing a shitty job now. Putting kids in institutions in, you know, in, in retrofitted jails and things, it's still very sanitized. It's still very not sanitized, uh, very institutionalized. I don't care how many, you know, pictures of cartoons or superheroes you put up on the wall. It's still a damn jail. So uh, Oregon, you need to do better. I, you know, I, I just, you need to do better. I'm sorry. That's not okay. You're, 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 get you're, these kids are, they're still, their lives still matter. They need to know that their lives still matter. Throwing them in, in these kinds of facilities is not, that's not the message you should be sending. So shame on Oregon. You guys need to do better. I hope somebody, I hope they do. I hope the fact that this gets national attention, something is done about it. You know, I get that there are some problem kids that need special circumstances, but we're talking 400 kids at this point right now. That's ridiculous. Ridiculous. We need to do something. More people need to foster if they can. I know it's not easy either. But so I just wanted to mention that. Um, <clears throat> Trump and his tweets. His tweet storm. You know, 
This guy was home alone in the White House over the weekend and apparently had nothing else better to do, as if there's nothing else going on in the world. And he tweeted about everything under the sun. Everything. It was like he had a breakdown. George Conway, Kellyanne Conway's husband, has become pretty infamous on Twitter with his criticisms of Trump. And he's on this crusade to to demonstrate that Donald Trump is mentally unstable. He's been like tweeting pages from from health journals and, and mental health diagnostic journals with the definitions of malignant narcissism and personality disorders and all kinds of things and showing that the that Donald Trump exhibits all the characteristics of these things. No shit, okay? We're <laughs> this is not not news to those of most of us, but just the fact that George Conway being Kellyanne Conway's husband and Kellyanne being the chief spokesperson for Donald Trump's bullshit. Um, and then you have this contrast with her husband. I just don't know how this works. And I used to be friends with them. Yeah. I've known Kellyanne a long time. I am just blown away by what she's turned into. I'm glad to see that George hasn't lost his mind completely. And that he's been almost, he's like a never Trumper now. I, I just don't know how this works at home with them. Um, but I see that a lot of his tweets are geolocated in their home in Alpine, New Jersey. She's down here in, in DC. They have an $8 million, beautiful 15,000 square foot, ma- square foot mansion in DC where the kids are now. They've moved down here, but I've been in their house in Alpine. Yeah. She, when I lived in Jersey, we lived like two, three miles away, two, three miles away from each other. So anyway, so George Conway has been tweeting up a storm. Um, Kellyanne was asked about this and she was very dismissive oh I have four kids to get ready in the morning I I can't keep keep up with his tweets and I briefed the president already Mm -hmm. she's aware trust me I just don't know what those dinner conversations are like if they're even having them anymore I don't know I just don't know how that works but he's right George Conway is right and he's very smart by the way he's a very successful corporate lawyer he was on the front lines back during the 90s of conservative movements Um, so he, you know, he's, he's a smart guy. He's no slouch. So I, I'm just, it's not only do I respect what he has to say now, but it's just a fascinating dynamic to watch play out. It's very soap opera, very real housewives, um, or house husbands. But part of the tweet storm, I mean, Trump went off about Saturday Night Live because they're making fun of him. You know, all the late night hosts have been making fun of him lately. I mean, there's a lot of material there. I don't blame them. But it was a rerun for God's sakes. And he's he's up in, his, up in arms about a rerun. Like, dude, first of all, why do you even give a shit? That's, the, that's part of the, the mental disorder. Why do you care? Get over it. Who cares? And then he was tweeting about that Janine Pirro over at Fox you know, she's a despicable person. She said some horrible things. She says a lot of horrible things. But what got her suspended was claiming that Representative Omar, because she wears a hijab, means that she's not American. That's, you know, she's questioning her Americanism. That's, come on. So that got her in trouble. Now, just after this slaughter of 50 people in New Zealand, Muslims, this anti-Muslim rhetoric from this white supremacist, the president of the United States is advocating for Fox News to keep their, to keep her and bring her back on air. And why are you silencing her? Well, she got in trouble for anti-Muslim comments. I mean, really? 
Why are you involved? You're the president. You're not some color commentator. You're not like Siskel and Ebert of the cable news. What are you doing? You have other more important things to worry about than your favorite freaking channel over there and what they're doing and the ratings. He went after the weekend hosts. He went after another black female, Arthel Neville. Now, I don't watch Fox News anymore. I can't stomach it. Once in a while, I'll turn just to see how ridiculous and left field they are with compared to what's happening in reality. But for the most part, I can't deal with them. But Arthel Neville's very nice. We have mutual friends. And she's a weekend anchor. She's not an opinion person. And I, I don't know what happened, but I guess maybe they were reporting on the truth. And Donald Trump didn't like it. And so he attacked them, her and Leland Vitter or whatever his name is, her co-anchor on the weekends. Like this guy, on and on. And then um, he went after the, the Ohio and the, the plant in Ohio that GM closed down because people aren't buying Chevy Cruises anymore. Hello, welcome to capitalism. I feel bad for the people there, but you need to, that's, a, that's the private sector. The president should have no involvement in that. Talking about, I don't care what you need to do. I want the factory open. Well, you don't get to dictate that. Not in capitalism, you don't fascists do communists do socialists do but in america you don't control the means of production usually so what are you doing getting involved in that and tweeting that out and then the kicker going after john mccain senator mccain again you know he put out some misinformation about senator mccain was 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 behind the fake dossier and before the election, and he was part of this whole cabal to take out Trump before the election and the fake Russian, Russia collusion story and blah, 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 blah. Except none of that's true. Yes, it's true that Senator McCain turned the dossier over to the FBI, but that was after the election. Trump had already won. So that's bullshit. But yet he's tweeting it out. So something must be going on. And then he also went on to say about how uh, John McCain, quote, last in his class at Annap- in Annapolis. Well, John McCain's been very open that he wasn't the best student at Annapolis. But Do- Donald Trump's talking about this. He, again, is trying to disparage John McCain's character, his legacy. The guy is an American hero, flat out, unequivocally. Did I always agree with John McCain's policies? No, but I tell you right now, the guy's a freaking American hero. He suffered for five years as a prisoner of war in Vietnam. Tortured. That's why he couldn't lift his arms all the way. It was from the torture. He almost died and he had the opportunity to leave. A lot of people don't know that. Not only was he a prisoner of war, he had the chance to leave early because his dad was a, um, I think he was an admiral at the time. But he was a high-ranking officer in the, in the Navy. So they were going to release him. And John McCain said, no, not without my fellow prisoners, his fellow American servicemen that were also prisoners of war. So he could have left and chose not to. That is courage. That is honor. That's integrity. These are words Donald Trump has no idea about. And no one will ever use them to describe him. So what is he doing going after John McCain again? And Donald Trump, who had to have his daddy get him into Wharton. You know, Donald Trump didn't get into Wharton right away. He transferred from Fordham. Yeah. 
after his daddy made a large donation. Same thing happened with his own kids. Trump did the same thing to get one, I think Don Jr. in to Wharton. I mean, come on. The same guy who used Michael Cohen to pay off people so that they wouldn't release his high school or college transcripts. Give me a fucking break. How dare Donald Trump go after John McCain like that? He's, he's such a disgrace, a coward, and a silver spoon draft dodger. I said as much on CNN over the weekend also, and I stand by it. And Lindsey Graham, shame on you too. You're another coward. You stand by and kiss Trump's ass while he dishonors who someone who was supposed to be your best friend. You've got to be kidding me just so that you can maintain power. What an embarrassment. Lindsey Graham should be a freaking shamed of himself. Absolutely ashamed of himself. So there must be something coming down the pike because Trump is, you know, freaking out on Twitter, 50 tweets, retweets of randos and QAnon conspiracy theory people. I mean, it was out of control. It was really out of control over the weekend. You know, some updates with the Mueller report and what's going on with that investigation. Looks like, um, uh, Trump's trying to undermine that. The House voted 420 to zero, saying that the Mueller report should be made public when it's ready. Trump said there should be no Mueller report because it was all illegal and it started off illegally. I mean, crazy stuff. Well, the public thinks differently. Rick Gates, who was Paul Manafort's right-hand guy, also deputy campaign manager, he's also convicted. He's going to j- jail too. Um, but Mueller has postponed his sentencing because uh, he's cooperating. There's multiple investigations going on here, folks. It's not just the Mueller investigation. You have the Southern District of New York also, the New York Attorney General. There's a lot going on. Trump, I mean, his his inaugural, inaugural committee, his finances, there's a lot, a lot. Also, there's a report that um, Michael Cohen's, uh, the FBI raid, that that report's going to be unredacted, released. I can't imagine there's anything good in there about Trump. There's a lot. So I guess that's why he's freaking out. Also, Elliot Broidy, his offices were raided by the FBI. Do you remember that guy? That's the guy Michael Cohen helped to silence the Playboy bunny. He got pregnant and made her have an abortion. Michael Cohen was involved in helping that guy silence her on that whole thing, paid her, I think a million, over a million dollars to be quiet. And they were both deputy finance chairman of the RNC, by the way. Him and Michael Cohen. Wonderful guys. Yeah, that's just wonderful. So he got raided by the FBI for something else. Money laundering, some other financial crimes. So he's in trouble. Mm-hmm. These are people Trump hung out with. These are, you know, <laughs> unbelievable. So pay attention to that. The House investigation, they they queried 81 people. They've requested documents and, and people to come in and, and testify different investigative committees. They've gotten tens of thousands of documents back from these people. Some have cooperated, some haven't. So I think subpoenas are going to go out. I mean, it's far from over for Donald Trump. And um, news report just broke that the Trump, the White House will get to see the report, Mueller report before the public or Congress does. So they have a chance to look for executive privileged information. Yeah, right. So they can formulate a strategy to try to undermine it, which is what he's been doing this whole time. So there's that. So a lot going on. Uh, Ian Bremmer is coming up next. Beto O'Rourke, real quick. He got into the race. Beto Robert Francis O'Rourke. That's his real name. Um, 
I think Beto's interesting, a little too emo for me, but people like that he's very self-reflective. Um, he's charismatic. People like him. He raised $6.1 million in his first day, more than any other Democrat thus far, more than Bernie. Broke a record. Um, thin, he's very thin on policy, but his he, he's appealing to people because he's like the complete opposite of Trump <laughs> in a lot of ways. And he's young and charismatic and you know, he's jumping up on bars in Iowa, talking to people and people like that. They say they remind him of, he reminds them of Obama, young Obama. Well, we'll see. Um, Joe Biden has yet to jump in the race. You know, that's who I'm rooting for on the Democratic side. So we'll see what happens. Biden almost slipped up over the weekend and, you know, in his comments declaring that he was going to run. I mean, we all pretty much know he's going to run, but that's going to be interesting. We all know that Joe Biden is who Donald Trump fears the most, and he should. So Democrats, get out of your own way. Biden is the most electable. I'm telling you, everybody else is second tier. They're all vying for vice president. Well, on that note, let me bring in Ian Bremmer on this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. Well, this week I am so excited to have on someone smarter than I am, which is part of the advantage of having my own show. I get to talk to people smarter than me. And this week it is Ian Bremmer. For those of you who don't know, Ian is president and founder of Eurasia Group and G Zero Media. He's also the host of G Zero World with Ian Bremmer, which is available at gzeromedia.com and it has a podcast. But he's also a really smart guy. He has a PhD. He's authored 10 books and he knows a little bit about something around geopolitics, the political risks and economy. And this week I want to have him on to talk about the rise in nationalism. It's not just an American problem after what we saw in New Zealand. So Ian, thank you so much for making time today for Honestly Speaking. Sure, my pleasure. Got to be with you. So um, Ian, you know, everyone is really mourning what happened in New Zealand. I've been there. It's a beautiful country. It's one of the last places on earth you'd think such a tragedy like this would happen. But for someone like you who studies these things, um, what did you think when you first saw what happened, who the perpetrator was in the context of, of what's going on globally? What were you thinking? Well, I mean, my, my first thought was yours uh, as well. I was in New Zealand uh, about a year ago, uh, including the South Island. It is utterly magical. Yep. Um, it's not very populated. It's quite wealthy. Enormous focus on sustainability, the environment, nature, animals, and some of the most extraordinary trekking in the world. So this is not a group of people that you would expect are going to, you know, manage to experience one of the worst uh, white supremacist terrorist crimes that humanity has witnessed, but. We also know that um, across the advanced industrial democracies, in other words, the wealthy countries of the West, there are an increasingly large number of people that feel like the system is rigged against them. And we've absolutely seen that in Australia and even to a small degree in New Zealand. Um, some of it is anti-immigrant. Some of it is anti-anyone doesn't look like me. Um, some of it is about a feeling like working class and middle class people don't have opportunities. And there is a New Zealand first movement, um, which uh, is uh, very much. Uh, 
It is shocking. That's shocking to, to me yeah, because, you know, but you think all, New Zealand, it, it, you know, it's Lord of the Rings. I mean, I've, I've been to New Zealand, too. It's one, of my most, it's one of my favorite places in the world next to Italy. And there's more, peop, more sheep than people. And to think that that kind of, that kind of nationalist ilk would be brewing in, in some place like New Zealand was, was very alarming to me. Yeah, I mean, let, let's be clear. I mean, I actually did read uh, this 75-page manifesto uh, written by the killer. Um, there's very little focus on New Zealand there. He actually speaks fairly well of um, the authorities and the police um, in New Zealand, who he said he didn't want to actually uh, kill. He was focused on Muslims. Oh, how nice Muslims of him. That weren't from New Zealand. <laughs> Um, but I mean, look, I'm not, I'm not buying it. My yeah, no, no, I know. I'm being facetious. What, what interesting is about his background is that he's, he's overwhelmingly focused on Europe. His, his experiences that radicalized him appear to have been largely from his time in France and from his engagement with white nationalists and similar movements um, not in New Zealand, but in other countries around the world. But, you know, with, between, with social media being what it is, with the ability of people to connect and learn and communicate, um, you know, you can't isolate anybody. Uh, right. there's, nothing, there's no safe corner from this stuff. Right. Now, that, that leads me to um, something that you've written about. And in your last book, Us Versus Them, The Failure of Globalism, you really talk about the global implica implications of the rise of this populist, nationalist movement and the way that governments have responded to it. And uh, a lot of the focus is also on what's going on in Europe. And I, I just don't think a lot of Americans really understand that there is this same, uh, probably even more so, more pronounced in Europe, this idea of, of nationalism and populism in ways we haven't seen since a scary time when a certain German and Italian were, were engaging in certain things, too. Talk a little bit about that, about that, that rise of, of nationalism and populism, along with the supremacy aspect of this going on in, in Europe. Well, it is very important, especially because, I mean, you know, he did mention President Trump once in his, you know, manifesto. Right. Um, and so, of course, in the United States, everyone's like, oh, my God, he was inspired by Trump. And there's no question that we have this problem in the United States. Trump is not making it better. He's making it worse. Sure. I accept that. But actually, uh, this guy had almost nothing to do with what's happening in the United States. In this case, it happened to be Europe. And yes, if you look at Europe and you look at the rise of the National Front in France, if you look at the Yellow Vest, the Gilets Jaunes, um, who are increasingly very violent on the streets of Paris and in other cities across France, you look at the government we have in Italy right now, mm -hmm. the movements in Hungary and Poland. I mean, so many people that feel, first of all, that economic inequality is undermining them, that they've lost their opportunities. And they're really angry about all of these new immigrants that have come in. And they're very angry about large Muslim populations, which are significant in these countries, but the people believe that they're much bigger than they actually are. So in France... The average Frenchman believes that there's about 33% of the population is Muslim. In reality, it's 6 to 7%. Mm -hmm. Here in the U.S., it's about 1%. Everyone thinks it's more than it is. Everyone focuses on the dangers of radical Islam. I mean, when Trump first became president, of course, the first thing he said he would do was um, the Muslim ban. Um, but this is becoming a much, much more significant toxin 
inside our own countries, inside liberal democracies across the world, not just in the United States. And it really, in a sense, the big first vote that led people to recognize that people were angry and not going to take anymore wasn't Trump. It was six months before when the United Kingdom decided to vote uh, in the Brexit referendum to leave Europe. Same right. sort of thing. Right. And that, that snuck up, I think, on a lot of people in the United States. No one was really paying much attention to that. And then, except for those of us who do, <laughs> but for the average American, they're like, what is this Brexit? Like, what is happening in, in, in England? And when it did happen, um, I, I really don't think, I think a lot of it was, was around the idea of immigration and the United Kingdom deciding that they wanted to take, take their borders back, um, framed very similarly to the way, to what Trump was doing with immigration here in the United States. What, some of the points are valid. But the just the, the, the vitriol behind it, um, very us versus them, great, great name for your book. Um, and I think that that's, that foments a certain amount of, of fear and animosity toward people that is grossly unfair and patently dangerous. It's grossly unfair. It's completely dangerous. And it's also completely understandable. You mm-hmm. can't just blame Trump and the Brexiteers for what's happening. I mean, we had eight years of Obama in the United States, and actually the divisions inside American society grew under those, over those eight years. They grew before that right. under Bush. They grew, they've grown under Trump. I mean, for the last 40 years, working and middle-class wages in the U.S. have stayed flat, while the economy as a whole has grown extraordinarily. Um, for the last decades, we've had these wars in Afghanistan and Iraq that we've failed, um, the wars we've lost. We've spent trillions of dollars on the back of poor men and women, enlisted, enlisted men and women, their families and their communities. Um, and so we should not be surprised that after that, that today we stand in 2019 and, and economic inequality in the U.S. is higher than any point since before the Depression. So over 100 years, it's not being addressed by Republicans or Democrats, and therefore people are increasingly turning not to traditional political leaders, but they're turning to people on the outside. Young people are saying, we don't care about democracy. We'd support a socialist. We don't care about democracy. We'd support mm-hmm. an authoritarian leader. Right. We, don't, we, we don't care about capitalism, right? So, and the, the, the Brexit vote was the same thing. It wasn't people that thought Brexit would make their lives better, but at least they were able to say, we're going to hurt all of these people that have been benefiting while they're lying to us. It is the same thing in all these countries. Well, let me ask you a question about um, the, the Russian role in, in Brexit, because I know that you, ha- you know a little bit about Russia, given what you uh, did your Ph.D. on, um, which was Russians in the Ukraine and the politics of identity. Uh, something I didn't know right away. Obviously, most of us didn't know at the time until it became known that Russia had meddled in our election. Didn't Russia play a role also in fomenting some of this anger in the Brexit um, the Brexit campaign, similar to what they've done here in the U.S., just the sowing of chaos, it's just part of what Russia does, part of their hybrid a- warfare tactics, right? Yeah, I mean, the Russians uh, see that they benefit from both weakening the transatlantic relationship as a whole and also dividing our societies internally. And so they have um, spent direct money in trying to promote people that are most Euroskeptic to weaken Europe promote the Brexit voices, people like Nigel Farage from the UK Independence Party, same thing, and promote fake news um, and bots and trolls. 
that can help to uh, exacerbate the anger and feeling of disillusionment that so many people in these countries who believe their systems are rigged against them. Um, and uh, do I think that you know the role of the Russians, it's because of them that Trump won or because of them that Brexit passed, we'll never know. But what I do know is it's wrong to blame the Russians for our problems. I mean, they are taking advantage right. of divisions that already exist. They mm-hmm. did the same thing with German elections, and they had very little impact because Germany actually feels much more cohesive and much less angry and divided than France or the United States or the United Kingdom. And that, that's the problem. We can do what we, we – we certainly want to engage in better controls over how Facebook operates and our cybersecurity and defenses and the rest. But the only real defense is to actually heal these incredibly deep wounds that have been growing for decades in our own society. And, and you, how do you propose doing that? Because a lot of people are looking at this situation going, how the hell do we get out of this? How do we possibly bridge these divides, heal these rifts? Uh, it's a, it's a, a question I struggle with every single day as I see what's going on. You know, as a lifelong Republican and conservative, I'm, I'm horrified by what's going on and just the complete uh, uh, abandonment of principles and, and just how low the bar has been set now. Um, in your estimation, it's obviously it's bigger than just, just the Republican Party or the United States. This is, it seems to be a growing global problem with this rise of populism where people are not, in my opinion, necessarily rational in their response to things. It's all emotion, 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 and it's chipping away at our democracies and things um, as they're doing it. And, and that's what scares me. What, what do you see as a potential solution? Some of the solutions maybe are things that we could work toward that might heal this wound, these wounds. Well, the thing, the thing that worries me is, of course, this divide is happening when our economies are doing well and global growth is high. So it's right. obviously going to get more challenging in the coming years when we hit a different part of the economic cycle. But if you want to break down what the, how you fix it, you look at what the problems are. So number one, this massive economic inequality becoming worse because uh, it, you know, a lot of people are going to lose their jobs or be displaced by new technologies. So what do you need to do? You need some level of redistribution, um, which is going to reduce uh, economic inequality. That needs to be uh, you know, heavy investment in improved education, not just K through 12, but lifetime education, universal education that follows workers as um, their environments change and as their jobs change. Some of that can be private sector. Some of that probably has to be public sector. Um, you need to invest in infrastructure in, in parts of the country that have really seen those investments dry up. We, Trump talked about an infrastructure week. It didn't happen. Right. Um, Every week is infrastructure Obama week, Ian. <laughs> it didn't happen. Right? I know, I know. It didn't happen. Uh, so <sighs> that, that's one set of things is, is, is to you know, put the kind of investments that would help people feel like the social safety net is working for them. Um, Some of it is recognizing that we're not going to need the same levels of immigration as we did when we were labor poor, Mm -hmm. um, when we actually didn't have folks to do the jobs, the the low-skilled jobs. Increasingly, those jobs aren't going to exist, so we're going to need to treat um, immigration differently. Um, May mean uh, different skill sets coming in, may mean different types of numbers coming in as well. Um, That's going to be challenging. The The first set, the economic set's hard for Republicans. Right. The immigration set is challenging for Democrats. Right. Challenging for both sides is ending these forever wars, right, because uh, they're, they're not accomplishing much for us. The foreign policy establishment loves them, but they're being fought on the back of the average person. 
um, and they're not over. I mean, why? why? Mm-hmm. The average American does not want us to still be in Afghanistan. When you right. take that seriously, I've supported getting yeah. out of Afghanistan uh, eight years ago. You know, back in 2010. I mean, it, it, in 2011, it's um, it's been a waste of blood and treasure, and yet we're here. We are still there. And 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 the final point, and the most difficult one, is we actually need to um, probably change the regulatory process around the social media and the internet companies. They have to be more responsible. They have to act more like traditional media. Um, they, they, they can't allow um, the anonymous, the trolls promoting the fake news. They can't just be about maximizing eyeballs and addicting American citizens to their platforms because it's undermining democracy and it's making us hate each other. So the, I, I do think that's something where um, you're going to need to see a, a changed uh, set of policies that's going to make life difficult for these companies. But you know, if you don't do it, I mean, these are none of these are easy. None of these will happen right. in your term. Right. All of them are the things that we will need to do if you want to address these problems. Well, it, uh, clearly we've seen that's, that social media companies like Facebook and, and others, even Google, I mean, th- these, these companies have come under more scrutiny than ever after what happened with the election and the role of fake news and the infiltration of, of uh, you know, the Russian bots and things like that. And now even with the live stream of the New Zealand attack, there's a lot of questions being raised. Even presidential candidates are raising them. I think that's going to be a very fascinating debate moving forward because so many of our lawmakers are ignorant about the tech world and how these things work. Um, there's just a lack of knowledge about that, too, I think has also contributed to why there hasn't been more movement on trying to regulate these these companies. And, of course, there's lots of lobbying money <laughs> involved as well. Um, I just want to ask you really quick, and then I want to talk about G0, because I, G0media.com, your website, is phenomenal, and people need to go there and get smarter and learn about what's happening. And it's also hilarious. But um, what did you think as we were just you just talking now in the context of changing the way our economy works and how people um, are, are the skill sets and education for a global economy, basically? What did you think about Trump's tweets over the weekend directed toward GM and the closure of their plant and basically attacking the the union boss and saying that he doesn't care what happens. He wants the factory open. That was horrifying to me because I I tweeted out and I said that kind of tweet reminds me of a lot of isms and capitalism isn't one of them. As As a political economist and expert in this, what did you think about that? Um, look, uh, there's no question that I would like to see, to the extent that Trump is focused on undermining capitalism and developing industrial policy, right. I would much rather see him. I would much rather see him do it for 21st century investments like artificial intelligence, um, like cyber. I mean, I, I, I do believe that because the Chinese government, which will soon be the largest economy in the world, mm-hmm. is promoting actively their strategic companies in the 21st century industry, the Americans need to do the same. We did that. We were capitalists fighting the Soviets, but companies like Lockheed and Northrop and Raytheon were not allowed to sell to the Soviets, right? Now, that's not capitalist. Tough. We needed them for national security. Right. I'd like to see Trump focus more in his building of industrial policy in 21st century and not be focused as much on the automotive, the coal plants, and the, and the places that, frankly, we're just not going to, to, you know, investing in those are not going to make us the world-class leaders going forward. Right. Uh, so I, People I forget do about automation, right? 
automation, I, technology, yeah, I, those I, things contributed I, to why a lot of those areas have lost jobs and things, but nobody wants to right. hear about that. It's a lot easier yeah, for Trump I mean, to go gonna, out and blame put, the brown people. You can put more you know? money in those sectors, but it's not going to create the jobs. Right. So, I, mean, I do believe we need more intervention from the government, but I think we have to be smart about it. It's not like, let's just become socialist. That, that, that's not going to do anything for anyone. Right. Well, of course, as a, as a conservative, I would, if we had more time, I would talk about, I don't know how much government intervention I want, but maybe some to steer things. You know, if we're going to have government in, uh, in, uh, investment, let it at least be investment, like you said, in areas that are, that would help me, help us compete globally. I get worried when there's too much government involvement, but that's another, that's an, <laughs> another discussion, which is actually a good uh, a segue into um, G zero G zero media.com and what you're doing over there. You have a, um, a story about five G, which I still don't really understand what that is, but maybe you can quickly explain that what is going on with five G and why should we be concerned about China's role in all of, in all of that? I mean, I already know about China and their, their intellectual property theft, which they're constantly doing for us. They pose a significant threat in that respect to our country, our technology, um, but talk a little bit, just a little bit about what 5G actually is and why everyone should care about it. Um, 5G, I mean, this is um, the uh, system that will not only speed up smartphones by about 100 times, so downloading will effectively be a thing of the past, um, but also it's what's going to underpin the Internet of Things. So everything in the world that has a chip in it will run on 5G. That's how you get smart cities. That's how you have autonomous vehicles. Mm. Um, you, you need that so that millions and millions of objects can be in connection with each other at real time. That allows for surveillance. It allows for deep learning from big data. Um, the Chinese have a system. It is end-to-end. -end. It is cheaper than the Western system. It is rolling out next year a little faster than the Western system. And it competes with ours. Um, and they also steal stuff uh, in terms of when they have access to data, they use it. Um, and so that's a real problem uh, for the Americans. We are telling them we don't want their system in the U.S., but the Europeans are looking at, I mean, they've got much more exposure to China Telecom, and they're increasingly not listening to the Americans on this. And does the, like what ZTE was doing um, and the concerns, because there's legislation on the books that basically prevents a certain amount of Chinese uh, technology in certain sectors uh, of American products, right? Um, there's no question. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, you know, you've got all, all the, there are strategic and non-strategic sectors uh, of the Chinese government uh, and economy, and we have an easier time working in the non-strategic, but in the areas that are strategic, they do not want American firms in there. And this is why Facebook and Google and Amazon, none of them have models to do business in China. Right. They're not there. These are some of the biggest companies in the United States. They're not in China, right? And China right. has no intention of letting them in. That's a real problem for us. And then vice versa, though, with the concerns about Chinese intelligence and trying to infiltrate certain sectors, um, the, the U.S. is like, yeah, but we also don't want Chinese technology in some of our things either. So it's, That is increasingly true, which right. doesn't sound like capitalism, right? right? I mean, when, <laughs> when the largest economy in the world isn't capitalist, then you're not going to have a global free market. You're going to have a hybrid, uh, fragmented global economy, and that's where we're heading. And um, as we wrap this up, um, I'm going to ask you one last serious question, then end it on something a little lighter, because when we talk, um, and honestly speaking, when we talk about these heavy subjects, I'm like, we got to end it on something light or else we'll all be alcoholics. So uh, <laughs> it's just too much going on. Um, where, where do you see the most worrisome places in the world right now? What, are the, where, what should people be paying attention to 
um, when they're looking at, at the geopolitics of the world, where should they be paying mo the most attention? Uh, clearly, the U.S.-China relationship is by far the most important. Um, I mean, you know, you can argue that we're doing a lot of damage to ourselves, so we need to focus on the legitimacy of institutions and the weakness of the transatlantic relationship, U.S.-Europe. You can say the Russians are in decline, they're trying to hurt us, you've got to pay attention to that. But the biggest thing is that we are transitioning from the U.S. as the largest economy to China as the largest economy. The Chinese are building an alternative system. They're not aligned with us. There's no trust between the two countries. They're authoritarian. They're state capitalists. We're not, and neither of us really want to collaborate in building shared rules. So that is by far the most important thing out there. Well, that is, um, and, and how soon? How soon is that supposed to happen where China surpasses the U.S.? I mean, you know, it's going to happen over the next 10 years, but mm -hmm. the fact is they're already um, spending so much more money as a government in Belt and Road outside their country on infrastructure, on technology, and we're not doing that as a government. It makes a big difference. So what can we do to stop it? Is it inevitable, or is there something that we can do policy-wise that we can stop it? Is there something, you know, we have 2020 coming up. Is there anyone that you see in the 2020 field that has enough experience or, or, or will to do something about this? I mean, you know, you're talking about the idea of creating a Marshall Plan, um, mm -hmm. you know, that, that really the Americans are not prepared to do that. So absent that, what you really need to do is lead by example, and that means making our own country much stronger. Um, and uh, we haven't had a leader that's been capable of doing that in the past decades, which is why um, this, we are in the situation we are now. I mean, I, I do believe that there are good leaders out there, but it's more than one person. I mean, you know, Trump individually hasn't destroyed our system, um, even though he's tried in some ways. Yeah, right? he's chipping away. Yeah. Any, any, do you have any, any early favorites in 2020? I saw that you tweeted a really cute picture of, of Mayor Pete Buttigieg and his dog. I love Mayor Pete. I mean, you know, the guy is... Uh, <laughs> he's interesting. I mean, he's, he's actually served in the military, speaks eight languages. Uh, he, he's obviously very fluent uh, on, uh, on foreign policy issues. Um, and uh, he's done a good job running a small city. I mean, is he ready to be president? You know, probably not particularly, right. but, um, you know, frankly, certainly Trump wasn't, and Obama wasn't either, so that, that shouldn't be what we look at. But I, I think he's good. I think Amy Klobuchar looks good um, early on. I certainly like Mike Bloomberg, but he would have had zero chance to win. Uh, we'll see where we get. What do you think of Biden? Um, I think that uh, Biden is, uh, you know, kind of probably odds-on favorite to be the next president. You have to pick one person, but um, we've been seeing Biden for a very long time. Yeah, I, I, I think Biden's the only one that has a shot, even though he's old news, but people know him. He knows what he's doing. Despite his gaffes and everything else, I'll take him over what we have now any day. Um, on, on the final note, the, you have on your, on your website the puppet regime which uh, is one of the funniest things I've ever seen. Who is the creative genius behind that? Is that you? Yeah, I started the idea uh, <laughs> in the sense that I felt like we deserve puppets. I mean, you can't have politics <laughs> being this absurd and not have puppets. It's not right. Um, but I mean, we have a team that actually creates them and writes them. I mean, I've done a couple of them, but mostly, you know, it's, it's just... Uh, I think it's very important to take your work seriously, but not take yourself so seriously. And, exactly. Uh, and, we also, and, we, and we also need to get young people um, to not disengage, and this is a way to do that. It, for those who don't know, you've got to go over to G0Media.com, check out the puppet regimes. They're like two to three minute vignettes, um, puppet skits of all kinds of things with Trump. And it's one of the funniest things next to our cartoon president, which I talk about all the time on Showtime. This is up there with that, just great writing, hysterical, and we need some levity 
in, in this national nightmare that we're living and uh, the puppet regimes for sure add to that. Ian Bremmer, thank you so much. I, you're one of the only people I will allow on my podcast that's a Red Sox fan because I'm from Jersey and I'm a Yankees fan, but I will forgive you because you're smart and <laughs> you know what you're talking about and I appreciate what you're doing. So I forgive you for being a Red Sox fan. <laughs> Great talking to you. Be good. <laughs> Thanks, Ian. Take care. You've heard plenty of stories about drug cartels. They are all over the news. But the crime ring you've probably never heard of is one of the most dangerous in the world. They are the Mennonite mob. That's right, the Mennonites. 99% of them are kind, God-fearing people. But there's one group that has smuggled millions of dollars of narcotics from Mexico to Canada. Wednesdays, 10, 9 central on WGN America, the new TV series Pure is based on the true events of the Mennonite mob. The show is about Noah Funk, the newly elected Mennonite pastor who is determined to rid his community of the drug cartel. But he finds himself way in over his head, and the good pastor along with his wife will do some very bad things all in the name of protecting their family. So think of Pure as Breaking Bad meets Witness meets Narcos. So get hooked on Pure. Wednesdays at 10, 9 central, only on WGN America. WGN America is available on DirecTV Channel 307, Dish Channel 239, or check your local cable listings for the channel in your area. That's Pure on WGN America. That's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking. Big thank you to Ian Bremer for bringing his his wisdom, knowledge, and smarts to the conversation this week. Uh, tough conversation. I'm going to like try to lighten it up next week. Um, I was going to have Yvette Nicole Brown on this week, but because of what happened in New Zealand and all the news, I, I decided to hold her over. So we're going to have her interview next week. So we're going to lighten it up. I can't take another week like this. <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much for listening. You can reach out to me on Twitter at Tara Setmayer or at honestly underscore speaking on Instagram at the Tara Setmayer. So be sure to reach out, tell me what you like, what you don't like, who you'd like to see, some questions. I'm happy to answer them. I'm very interactive on social media. So thank you again for listening and I'll see you next week. 